from sin. So the scene is this. Jesus is at his kind of homecoming uh, back to Capernaum where he's been staying. He's been on this ministry tour going around and he comes back to his hometown. And so the crowds are there to welcome him and they're swarming the house that he comes back to. And, and, and you've got the picture here. Kind of, we, we just saw some pictures of it actually. Of Jesus kind of in the middle of this lounge. The crowds gathered around, kind of cramming them way, their way in. To the point where people kind of can't even get through the door and people kind of trying to look in through the window to see what's going on and hear what's going on. People are desperate to hear him preach the good news of the kingdom. And so as Jesus is there preaching with these crowds, suddenly kind of dust starts kind of coming down from above and you can kind of imagine people looking up, can't you? And then kind of clods of mud and sticks start falling down on people and they're thinking, what's what's going on? Until there's a hole big enough and this mat is lowered down with this man lying in the middle of the room in front of Jesus. There he comes. And everyone recognizes this man. We could call him like Larry, the local lame, if you like. He's the paralyzed man from the town. Everyone knows him and his story. There he is. He's had to be carried by his friends in and and, and lowered down. Houses in those days, they had staircases on the outside, flat roofs that were kind of sticks and beams and mud and stuff, so people could literally dig a hole in and, and, and let the man through. Now, what do you think Larry's friends were hoping for as they kind of carried him in and dug the hole and lowered him down to Jesus? What are they hoping that Jesus will do? What do they expect Jesus to say and give him? Well, it's healing, isn't it? Of course it is. They, they've heard about Jesus. They've brought him to Jesus to heal him. And we read in verse 5 that Jesus sees their faith. And what he says is totally surprising. Son, your sins are forgiven. Son, your sins are forgiven. You kind of think, awkward, Jesus. (laughs) Do you not get what's going on here? Do you not get what's just happened? This guy just wants healing. And he wants to go on his way, Jesus. Why are you talking about sins? See, Jesus has something better, something deeper to offer this paralyzed man. He wants to deal with this deeper problem of sin. And this is the shocking thing that this first little mini story shows us, is that our greatest need, and the greatest need of this man, is not his paralysis, not the fact that his body isn't working and he can't move. It's his sin. The sin in his soul, the the condition of his heart before God. And Jesus addresses that head on. And straight away. You know, it's funny, isn't it? Because we might think that we know what we need. We think we know what our problems are. We think of our anxiety or our addictions or our lack of work or our dysfunctional relationships or the abuse in our past or, or, or the difficult boss that we have at work or whatever other situation that might be in our lives. And we can bring those things to Jesus, hoping that he will change it, saying, Jesus, you know what you need to do here. You know what I want you to do with this. But Jesus gives us what we desperately need. He comes and he says, your sins are forgiven. Put your faith in me. The question that follows from these religious guys around, and you need to understand that as we look through this, when they ask a question, it's one of those questions that sounds maybe kind of innocent and reasonable, but really it's an attack and an accusation. There's things going on here. And, and, and the question they ask in verse 6 and 7, um, actually they're not asking it. We, we see that they're thinking it. 
They're probably kind of grumbling and mumbling kind of under their breath. Who does he think he is? You know, who, who can forgive sins but God alone? That's the question that they're bringing, at least in their hearts and minds. And you know what? They're bang on. It's the right question to ask. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Because sin is against God, and so it's his to forgive. It's no one else's. They knew that in their society and in their culture and in their religious framework. Who are you, Jesus, to claim to do what God alone can do? Well, Jesus' response is this. He says, what's easier then, to say your sins are forgiven or to say, get up, take up your mat and walk? It's a no-brainer, isn't it? It's easier to say your sins are forgiven because there's no one there who can actually test whether you can actually deliver on that. So you can go around saying that kind of thing all you like and, and nobody can really do anything about it, can they? But it takes some balls to say, get up and walk, paralyzed man, in front of a massive group of people, in front of a crowd. But you see, Jesus wants everyone to know that he can forgive sins. He wants everyone to know that he has authority to forgive sins. And so he tells the paralyzed man, get up, take your mat, and walk home. The miracle is that he does. He does. Straight away, strength and power comes to his body that has been lame for so long. And his legs uh, have power to get up and walk. He doesn't even stumble or anything like that. He gets up and he walks. He picks up his mat. This man is freed by Jesus. He's totally liberated. And he walks out and goes home. Listen, Jesus does care about healing the paralyzed man. I think we can see that, and we see that in those other healings and things. And it is true that in grace, he may well bring healing to the other stuff in our life that we bring before him and say, Jesus, you know what to do here. In his grace, he may well bring healing, and and, and in the end, he certainly will bring healing to those things. But Jesus cares more here about everyone knowing that he has authority to forgive sins. He wants people to know that he has come to heal their soul, to restore relationship with God. And that that is where true freedom is found, not just in getting some legs working again. And as people see and and experience that in that room, we read, Mark tells us, everyone is amazed. Everyone is amazed. That's freedom. That's our first look in episode one of freedom that uh, Jesus brings. Episode 2, uh, it kind of starts at the bottom of their page 13 and goes over the page. Th- uh, verse 13 to 17 is called this, Feasting with the Doctor. Feasting with the Doctor. You see, the scene here is now, uh, imagine a, a dinner party in a home. Uh, Jesus, we read, has picked up a new follower by the lake and, uh, and he's invited back for dinner. And, and so there's this scene of this dinner party and people kind of enjoying food and, and drink together. But it's surprising who is at this party. It's not the great and the good, but you've got Jesus and his disciples and the tax collectors and the sinners, we read. You can kind of hear the kind of contempt, the sinners were there. You know, this is Jesus really taking a step down in who he is hanging out with. From, you know, just the kind of fisherman who no one would be interested in. Well, now he's going a step down. He's, he's here at the house of Levi, who's, who's hosting this party, this kind of new best friend of Jesus. But Levi is a nasty piece of business. He's a tax collector. You see, back then, the Romans were the, the, the guys in charge, and they collected their, their taxes through agents. And, uh, but it was a totally kind of unregulated business. And so these agents, these tax collectors, they would add a bit of commission on here. 
they would kind of add a new tariff there. They would raise the taxes over here. They would take an extra cut for themselves in the back pocket. And so these, these tax collectors were there ripping everyone off, getting rich themselves, and very often ripping the poor people off, taking what they could get. And to top it off, a Jew who did that job was like the most ultimate snitch. Because there they are, as a Jew, working with the Romans who were occupying the Jews, kind of turning on their own people in bed with the Romans. And so here Jesus is with the lowest of the low, the worst you could imagine around at the time. And so again, the question comes from these good religious guys. Again, it's a question that attacks and accuses. This time they ask it out loud in verse 16. Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Why are you eating with these people, Jesus? These aren't the types of people that you want to be around. These aren't the types of people you want to associate with. Do you not understand? They're not going to help you be more religious or more impressive. or They're not going to extend your influence. It's a waste of your time, Jesus. Why are you with these types of people? You're just going to become like them. Jesus responds to this question in verse 17 with this, this phrase I guess most of us would have heard. He says, it's not the healthy that need a doctor, but the sick. And I've come not for righteous, but for sinners. You know, if you think you're healthy, you don't go to the doctor, do you? And so if spiritually you think you're healthy, you, Jesus will never make sense to you because he says, I'm not come for those who are righteous and I think they're spiritually healthy. Come for those who know they are spiritually ill, who know they have a sin problem, who know they are broken by the mess of their life. Those are the people that will turn to a doctor who are ready to respond to my invitation. So it's not so much that Jesus spends time with these people that he's becoming like these sinners. But no, Jesus says, I'm coming to heal them. I'm coming to help them. I'm coming to make them like me. Make them well again spiritually. You know, someone once uh, said to me, you don't know what I've done. You don't know how bad a person I am if only you knew about me. What they were saying is, you'd be done with me if you really knew. You don't want to spend any more time with me. Well, listen, Jesus does know what we've done. He does know where we've been and what's happened in our lives. And he's come for the sick and not the healthy. It's good news of freedom, isn't it? It does my head in when people, and we hear it too often, when people say Christianity is like this, this middle class thing for white British people who have got it all together and it, it's not for people like me and your church isn't for people like me and count me out. Not interested. It's a difficult question, doesn't it? As, are we so different to Jesus? Have we so warped his message and his attitude to people around that people can actually encounter us and believe that and say that is true? Because that isn't what Jesus is like here. That is not what he is like here. It's not what he causes people to be. However bad you feel, however horrible you feel, whatever you have done, you are welcome here and you're welcome in this church because Jesus has come for the sick. He's come for the sinners, not for the healthy and the righteous. And he comes to set us free.
comes to set us free. Third episode, on, uh, starting in verse 18, is called this, celebrating with the bridegroom. Celebrating with the bridegroom. And the scene here is, again, this feast is kind of continuing. And here are Jesus and his disciples enjoying this good feast, kind of out with the lads at Nando's or whatever else. And, but in contrast, you've got John the Baptist's disciples, and you've got the Pharisees' disciples. And they're kind of there fasting, not eating food. They're somber, they're silent, they're serious and very religious. And so you can kind of see the two groups of people. And uh, what had happened is that in, in the Jewish religion, they, they, had, um, they had one day of fasting per year, the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, when they were kind of required to fast as a people. The day when they uh, remembered their sins and the fact that God, through, uh, through the death of, of, of the animal, was, was restoring them to God, which was pointing them forward to what Jesus was going to do. So one day a year they were to fast, but by this time they were fasting twice per week the religious types. And they were letting everyone know about it. They would kind of whiten their faces. They'd put ash on their heads. They wouldn't wash. They'd wear kind of their worst clothes and go around looking really somber and kind of, you know, really disheveled and kind of like, look at how religious I am because I'm just, I don't know, I stink and look silly. I don't know. That's what they were doing. And so again, from, the, from, from that angle, the religious question comes, an attack on freedom in verse 18. Why are your disciples not fasting like others? Why are they eating and feasting and drinking and having a good time? Come on, Jesus, make them fall in line. Make them do religion right. And we actually know from elsewhere that Jesus does expect his followers to fast. But Jesus' response is this. A wedding day is not a day for fasting. A wedding day is a day for good food and drink and celebration and joy and a good party. You celebrate with the bride and groom on their wedding day. Jesus is is using this illustration to actually call, say, look, I'm the groom. I'm the bridegroom and I'm bringing God's kingdom and it's like a wedding party coming. And so this is a time of joy and celebrating. It's a time of freedom. It's only when the bridegroom is taken away that it's appropriate to fast. And Jesus kind of uses a couple of examples from the culture at the time to kind of illustrate this, saying, listen, I'm not coming to patch up the old religious ways of doing things. But I'm bringing something new and something different that kind of breaks the mold of your religious ways of living and doing things. Jesus describes it like this new wine. This new wine that Jesus brings, the new wine of forgiveness of sins and God's kingdom coming to people. This, this, this new wine, as it kind of ferments, it kind of swells in the hearts of his followers and, and kind of erupts into life of joy and, and of generosity and contentment and perseverance and hope and peace and long-suffering. The stuff that Jesus brings to people that just kind of overflows beyond what any kind of religious lifestyle could achieve. And Jesus said, listen, your old religious ways cannot cope with what I am bringing. They need to be transformed to carry this, this new reality. And so in answering this, this critical question from the religious, Jesus is here protecting his followers, protecting their freedom, protecting their freedom and life in him. Not letting these others come in and attack and steal away that freedom by making them turn to other things trapping them in these old religious ways of doing things. 
Jesus sets us free. And he protects us and keeps us free. Fourth episode is this, verse 23, following, resting with the Lord of the Sabbath. The scene is this, we're now on, on, on a Sabbath day, it was a Saturday, the kind of religious day of celebration for the Jews, and Jesus is walking through the field with his disciples, and these guys are really kind of letting loose and enjoying their freedom, because they're picking little grains of corn and eating them, you know, they're really going wild here, aren't they, as they walk through the fields. But this is a big problem for some, because it's the Sabbath. And the Sabbath, which was given as a gift from God to help his people know rest and peace and joy and life in him and a healthy balance in life. Well, again, they've just kind of made it this, um, this kind of ridiculous religious thing. They've, they've added this kind of pedantry upon pedantry to it. They've now got these 39 rules and regulations about what you can do and can't do on the Sabbath. And picking a little ear of corn as you walk through a field and, and kind of eating it or whatever or chewing on it. Well, that's harvesting, because that's what a farmer would do, isn't it? If they went out, and so that's work, and so that's forbidden on the Sabbath, according to their law. And so verse 24, the question comes as attack. Why are your disciples doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? Jesus, bring these people in line. What are they doing? They're messing up our religion and our law, and are you okay with that, Jesus? Well, again, of course, we're used to the pattern now. Jesus responds, and he smacks them down. And he protects his disciples from their oppressive man-made religion that they're looking to impose. And he explains that the Sabbath was given to serve and to bless us. It's not this new law-keeping religious exercise that we have to do. He says, look, the Lord of the Sabbath is here. I am the Lord of the Sabbath. I'm the one who invented it and who has given it. I'm, I'm the one who's in charge of it. And I've given it as a gift so my followers can chill out and enjoy being with me on the Sabbath. And he gives this example of David, a story in the Old Testament, who it kind of backs up his point that David, in a time of need, could, could technically not keep the letter of the law, and that was acceptable. You see, Jesus isn't some kind of checklist, rule-keeper, law-keeper, religious type, and he will not have his people enslaved to new rules and new laws once he has set them free. Because he sets us free, and he keeps us free. And this brings us to our fifth and final episode, our mini short story to show us the freedom in Jesus. And here we see that it is a matter of life and death. A matter of life and death. We're back in the Sabbath again on this final scene, and here we are back in the synagogue. And this time there's a man there, we read, with a shriveled hand. And we have no idea really about this man, whether he's there looking for healing from Jesus like the paralyzed man was or, or not. But it kind of doesn't seem that he was particularly. And so you can imagine this guy there just kind of sitting amongst the crowd, hoping he'll just kind of blend into the background or whatever else. is pretty shocked and, and kind of trembling as Jesus says, hey, you with the shriveled hand, you're like, what, me? And he's like, stand up in front of everyone. And there he is, this man with, with a shriveled hand standing in the middle of this packed room, everyone kind of now aware of his deformity. And the religious question, we see this time they are silent. They are silent, but they are still active. Mark tells us they're like silent assassins creeping up on their target. They're watching closely, looking for an opportunity and a reason to accuse Jesus. 
They're still scheming. Jesus knowing what's going on, and because they're being silent, instead he asks the question for them in verse 4. What is lawful on the Sabbath? Doing good and saving life, or doing evil and killing? Strange question, maybe, but the answer is plain as day, isn't it, to us? It's crystal clear. Well, of course, the Sabbath's all about bringing life and freedom. Of course, it's about doing good. It's not a day for evil and killing, is it? Of course not. And yet their silence and their stubbornness before him condemns them. They have nothing to say in response. So Jesus, we read, in anger and in deep distress, in anger and deep distress at their refusal to see that the prison, that their religious ways, uh, the prison is they're kind of locking people in with their, with their religion and, and, and all of these things. And Jesus, what he does here is he kind of, if you like, he just kind of busts open that prison and just, uh, and in an instant as the man stands there, his hand is restored. In front of, again, a room of people looking on, Jesus showcasing liberation and freedom of life in his kingdom. Of course he wants to heal the man and bless him with a restored hand. And yet something bigger is going on here. Something more significant is happening. Jesus has shown that he brings freedom and life. Not some new religious way of doing things, not some new path of living or whatever else. No, he brings life and life to the full. And the irony of the contrast here as we kind of finish uh, down in verses 5 and 6. The irony should not be lost on us because the Pharisees and these religious leaders who are there condemning Jesus for doing the work of healing a man on the Sabbath. Saying, that's work, you shouldn't be doing that on the Sabbath. But on that same Sabbath, they're doing the work of hatching a plan to murder a man and kill him. Mark's deliberately showing us it that way. It's a perfect picture of where these two paths end up. It's why it's a matter of life and death. Jesus frees us to life, but religion kills us. Jesus frees us to life, but religion kills us. Now listen, this battle between Jesus and these religious uh, guys is going to carry on through Mark, and we'll have to pick it up again as we go through Mark's story. But at this point, these, these five kind of little stories have brought us to a bit of a, a watershed moment. Because Jesus is setting people free, and, and he's protecting and fighting to protect them and their freedom. But the threats keep coming from these religious people, uh, trying, to, trying to impose their ways on, on those who Jesus is claiming for himself. Elsewhere in the Bible, in Galatians 5, it says this. It says, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened by a yoke of slavery. Jesus has set you free, so stand firm and don't let anything come in and take away and steal that that freedom and put you back into a place of slavery again. So listen, as I guess we think about responding to this in our lives, I want to say to us really simply, we need to receive and enjoy the freedom that Jesus gives to us. And we need to be warned against letting that freedom be lost. 
And listen, there's, there's two ways that I want us to, to think about this. Firstly, I want us to think about it about uh, those who we are seeking to reach. Those who are seeking to reach. Because it would be a terrible thing, wouldn't it, if we have so domesticated Jesus, that we have so domesticated our own lives and domesticated our church culture, that we aren't actually reaching with the good news to the needy and the alienated, to the sinners around us in our city. Using sinners in kind of, I know we're all sinners. If the way that we do life and, and our Christianity and, and, and our community groups and our church and, and think about Jesus is, is so different to this that we're not reaching those who get that they are sick who are ready for the doctor. Because those people are all around us. And we need to reach them and we need to tell them that the doctor has come not for the righteous but for sinners. And this is a church just for people like you. And this is a Jesus just for people like you. That's those we're trying to reach. But also for us, this is important for us, we must not let anyone else, however nice they seem, however religious or genuine we think they are, however inspiring they are to us, however spiritual they come across, we must not let anyone else convince us that we need anything other than Jesus for life and freedom. Because religious people will try to come and convince us. Even in this church, they will come and try and convince us. And they will often use Bible verses. And they'll often talk in ways that sound very impressive. That we need to keep certain rules or do certain things or have certain experiences to really be a Christian, to really know life in the fullness as Jesus gives it. And because we're not doing those things, we haven't got those things, we're missing something. And we're in bondage and we're in slavery and they'll say these things like that. And they might not even say it out loud, but what they're saying to us is, Jesus is not enough for you. He's not enough for you. And we need to know, and we need to hear that that path is spiritually deadly for us. And we cannot walk along it. We must keep well away from that path. We must protect the freedom that we have in Jesus, the life that he gives us. And we cannot treat lightly these things where people come and try and steal them away from us. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. You see, Jesus' mission is like a massive jailbreak. He comes and he grabs us and he takes us out of slavery and being in prison and he sets us free and he gives us life to the full. He gives us liberating life in his kingdom. And so we want to be those who receive that and who enjoy that and who bask in that life that he gives and those who freely offer it to others. We finish with just reading another part of God's word that picks this up for us. So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world, rather than on Christ. For, listen to this, in Christ, all the fullness of the deity, all the fullness of God lives in bodily form, and in Christ you have been brought to fullness. 
He is the head over every power and authority. Let's pray to him. Lord Jesus, we praise you and we thank you that you have come on a jailbreak mission to grab us, to liberate us and to free us. We who were once enslaved, we were once who were kind of in a spiritual prison locked up. And all of the consequences of that in our lives, you have come and you have burst open a door and taken us out. And given us life to the full and freedom in you. Lord, I thank you that you have come for sinners and not the righteous. It means you've come for me. Thank you. Lord, help us to help us to receive, to enjoy the freedom, to help us to help one another to enjoy the freedom that you give us. Life knowing you. And Lord, would we safeguard and protect that with one another and would the very thing that we offer to those around us be freedom in Christ, life to the full. Not some new religion or way of doing things or whatever else, or social uplift, Lord, would we give them would we take to them the doctor who has come to call sinners? We pray this for, for the growth of your kingdom. We pray this for our good, our joy, and most of all for your glory. Amen.